Go ahead and open up your Bible to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 5 is where we're going to be spending our time this morning. Now, in Romans 5, we are going to slow down a lot. Last week, we covered chapter 4, and we did the whole chapter. Uh, we're probably going to be in chapter 5 for about three weeks. It's going to take us a while to get through chapter 5. So we're just going to be in the first five verses of Romans 5. Romans 5, 1 through 5. Uh, when Micah and our four daughters and I all moved, out here uh, to Colorado from Southern California. Uh, we did so um, with, you know, I had a job all lined up and was uh, ready to, to, you know, get involved with uh, working. You know, obviously that's a big thing with, you know, moving and you have to have a job set up and, and whatever. I know some people do it without a job and, and whatnot, but uh, that was one of the big things for us. And I remember we got out here, we moved all the stuff into our house and, and all that. And I had this interview lined up. Uh, I already had a phone interview. I just needed to have the in-person interview to solidify the job and everything. And uh, I was on my way driving down uh, to to the the job uh, to, for this interview, and it had just snowed the night before. And uh, I'm driving driving down, and I hit a patch of black ice. I spin out of control, and I uh, I end up facing the wrong direction in traffic. And another car slowly, like, kind of slid into me, and we got into a, an accident. Uh, it was one of the weirdest accidents I've ever been in because nobody was injured. The other guy's car was fine. He could drive away. Uh, and yet my car uh, ended up needing to be towed, and, and my truck ended up needing to be totaled. It was like a, an SUV kind of a thing. And that was a, a terrible, terrible moment because in that moment, um, I had to call my potential future boss and say, hey, I just got in an accident and the job I was going to be taking was a driving job. And so I'm like, all right, I just lost the job. Uh, and now my truck that was going to be my work truck is on a tow truck. It ends up being totaled. Um, and uh, now I don't have a work truck. And so I am, it's like things are going from bad to worse. And it was just this terrible, terrible situation and terrible moment. And I remember actively thinking, I've just ruined my whole family. I've just drove us off of a cliff. You know, the proverbial cliff of the, now I, I made this decision. I moved us out here. I thought it was the Lord. And now look, we're all, we're all going to die. You know, that's just kind of the way it was going in my mind. And little did I know, but God had some things in, the, uh, in play that I could never have put together on my own. You see, the, my boss my, ended up being my boss, uh, rescheduled our, the interview, was very gracious, very kind. I ended up getting the job. I ended up getting a work truck from uh, work, and so that was all taken care of. And the money that we received for uh, our car being totaled from the insurance company was actually the money that we lived on while I was transitioning into work because the amount of money I would make in my in my beginning, you know, kind of training wasn't enough for us to even survive. And so, you know, the Lord put all the, all of that together and uh, orchestrated all of those pieces in a way that I never could have. And if I was orchestrating it, if I was putting it all together, I would not have chosen that. I wouldn't have said, hey, let's get in an accident and let's total the car and all those kinds of things. I would have chosen a completely different route. And yet that was the route that God uh, chose. You see, what seemed to be an arbitrary, painful tribulation in my life turned out to be the thing that God used to provide and to grow and mature us in our relationship with the Lord. He used it in ways that we never would have known had we not gone through it. And so that's kind of what we're going to be looking at together today in Romans 5, 1 through 5. You see, here's our big idea. There is hope even in painful things because Jesus loves you 
and he's in control. That is such a massive concept for us to grasp. That is such a big idea for us to truly rest in. Not just to understand theologically, but to really rest in, to, to, to place our hope in, to sit down upon, to uh, rest and, and lay down in uh, that thought and that idea. So let's read Romans 5, 1 through 5, and then we'll go back through and break it down. Romans 5, 1 says this, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance uh, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today, God. We thank you for this morning and this opportunity to open your word and to see what it has to say. And we thank you for the amazing and glorious truth that you unveil in this section. We pray that you would help it to, to bring, uh, to come to bear upon our hearts and minds, that we would be transformed by what your word says, and that we would no longer go our own way and pursue our own thing and uh, try to insulate ourselves from the work that you're doing in our lives, but we would give ourselves over to it instead and trust that you are good, that you are God, and that you know what you're doing. And so, Lord, we love you. We thank you. We commit this time to you, and we're so grateful for uh, you and your word, and we pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Today we're going to look at this section, Romans chapter 5 verses 1 through 5 in two parts. The first section is going to be verses 1 and 2, the produce of justification, and then the second part will be verses 3 through 5, the produce of tribulation. Now, for many Christians, their faith stops at salvation. For, for many people who they get saved, they, they become part of the body of Christ, they, they are in Christ, that's another way to say it, they, they've submitted themselves to the lordship of Jesus, they've recognized that Jesus' blood was shed, was poured out on the cross uh, 2,000 years ago for their sin and they believe that in faith and they come into salvation, this new life in Christ, and yet that's where everything stops. Nothing moves forward from there. It just, it's just, I'm in Christ and that's it. I'm just waiting now to die. That, that, that there's no bearing on anything else in my life. That there's hope of heaven and hope of eternity and yet that's it. And yet, and these Christians, they live defeated lives, enslaved to sin and entrapped by an unhealthy mindset that keeps them in, in this position that drags them down instead of lifting them up. Because they don't move forward into the things that God has for them. And, and, and this, this mindset is one that avoids difficulty and avoids trial because we think that somehow everything is supposed to be a, a utopia. Now, my family loves Disneyland. I, I don't know if you've had a chance to talk to my wife, but if you ever talk to my wife, she's probably going to tell you something about Disneyland or a future Disney trip. Uh, it's just kind of who she is. It's, it's what she's all about. And, and she has uh, discipled my 
four girls in this uh, crazy pursuit of life. And so, uh, you know, it's one of those things that I get to do with them and I'm excited to be able to enjoy those things with them. Now, if somebody was so kind and gracious as to gift us a trip to Disneyland, they, they say, hey, you know what? I want to buy you uh, tickets for a day at Disneyland and uh, I just want to, uh, you know, make sure that you guys are taken care of and so there's a meal plan involved and all that. So just, just go and enjoy yourselves. And if we were to make all the plans, make all the preparations and get ourselves there and, and get to the, the gate and you wait in the line and you go through the, the check-in thing and then right when you get into Disneyland, there's like a, a, a little flower bed that has a Mickey head in there. A lot of people take pictures right in there. If we were to do all of that and to go through the gates and get into Disneyland and then stay in the entrance and never go any further, it would be a ridiculous waste, wouldn't it? There is so much more. Just getting inside and taking a picture in front of a, a Mickey-shaped flower bed isn't the experience of Disneyland. There's a lot more in there. There are rides to ride. There are churros to eat. There are, I don't know if you know this, but there are beignets, Mickey-shaped beignets. They're glorious. Uh, they're by the Haunted Mansion. Go find them. They're, they're, they're amazing. Uh, we have lots of, of Disneyland tips if you need them. But the, th the reality is that there is so much more to experience than just the entrance. And so too it is with the Christian life. A lot of people just kind of experience the entrance. They just get into Christ, but they don't develop any further. And it's because of a mindset that keeps them down and holds them back. And one of the biggest mindset issues that we have is in thinking that difficulty is the obstacle instead of realizing that difficulty is the way. We, we think that difficulty is a problem. Difficulty is something to avoid. Difficulty and pain is something that we just do everything to insulate ourselves from instead of realizing that it's the way that God works in our lives. So let's look at this first section together today, the produce of justification, verses 1 and 2. Look back at verse 1. It says this, Therefore, having been justified by faith. Now, the first four chapters of Romans have all been focused on this setting up this one thought, this one idea, this one concept. And it, it ends with, or it comes to a head with the very last word of Romans chapter 4, which is a similar word that we see here in Romans 5.1. So the very last word of Romans chapter 4 is this, uh, justification. It says, because of our justification. And then look at verse 1 of chapter 5, having been justified. This word justification and justified is this major thing. We've been traveling all the way through these chapters to get to this thought. This thought is what sets up everything else. Now, here's the idea. There are two parts to the concept of justification. We've talked about this before, but just to, as a little bit of a review to get us uh, our, our minds in the right spot, justification on the one side has forgiveness of past sin, that, that there are things that I've done in the past and Jesus forgives me of that. And, and so instead of being guilty, now I'm brought back to just not guilty. That's one side of justification, but justification goes further than that. It's not just like you've never sinned to bring you back to zero. It's also to take you deeper and to treat you as though you've been um, uh, just as righteous as Jesus for your whole life. It's cleansing for present and future holiness. That's the two parts of what justification does. It's more than just dealing with the bad, that I'm not bad, it, it's actually counting me as 
good, as good as Jesus. Here's how 1 John chapter 1 verse 9 talks about it. It says this, if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. You see the two sides of justification there? Forgiveness and cleansing. They're, those are the two parts. Now, in this, the whole concept of justification is that you are declared righteous. You're declared just as good as Jesus. You're not actually just as good as Jesus. You're just seen that way. That, that's what this is talking about. The other aspect of this is something called sanctification, where you actually become uh, holy. You become pure. That's what the process of sanctification is, and that's what we're getting into here in Romans chapter 5. You see, justification is intimately tied to the idea of hope, and we're going to get into that in this section. Maybe you saw the word hope throughout this section in verses 2, 4, and 5. You see, justification is the greatest human need. More than, more than anything else that you need, you need to be justified. Which is why people are constantly trying to justify themselves. Have you noticed that? Maybe you even do the same thing. That you have a reason why whatever you did that was wrong, you know it was wrong. But you have this reason why it was okay. In this situation, in this scenario, under these circumstances, it's, it's okay. That's, that's us trying to justify ourselves. And the reason we do that is because it's the biggest thing that we need. It's been said that you can live 40 days without food. It's quite a long time. I've never tried to live 40 days without food, but that's what they say. You can live about 40 days without food. You can live about three days without water. About three days without water. You can live about five minutes without air, but you can't live one second without hope. Hope is absolutely essential. It's, it's, it's something that we absolutely need more than the uh, air we breathe, more than the water we drink, more than the food that we eat. And, and the reality is that because it's so essential, we try to justify ourselves, but ju self-justification just, just won't cut it. It just won't work. Notice what it says there in verse one. It says, therefore we have been justified by faith um, and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The only way that your justification is real and true and substantial is when it's through Jesus. And what does it mean by through Jesus? Well, it's talking about his sacrifice on your behalf. The, the fact that Jesus took your sin on his cross and paid for it on your behalf. That is how we are able to gain this justification. You see, self-justification is a convenient lie we tell ourselves to mask the, the reality of how depraved and fallen and wicked we, we really are. Justification is only possible if it's imputed. Do you remember that word from last week? It's given. It's, it's uh, imparted. Someone else has given you theirs. That's the only way that we can actually be justified because guilty people can't earn this justification. If I'm guilty, then I'm already uh, unjustified in terms of being counted just as good as Jesus. I can never get there because I'm already guilty. But because of the grace of God, because of how good he is, he'll look at me as if I'm just as good as Jesus. That's the amazing thing. And that's only possible by grace through faith. Also notice there in verse uh, 1 of chapter 5, there's this word therefore. You see the word therefore? We're going to see this word pretty often. It's going to be happening over and over and over again from here all the way through chapter 8. Now, what's taking place is that um, the, the word therefore is used 
to build one premise on top of another. It's a way that you build a concept, uh, build a case. You take one concept and you build another concept and then you build another concept. And so uh, if you are even to just scan through your Bible, you'll see therefore happens fairly often throughout this, uh, this next section. And so really what this is talking about is as we connect the previous thought, like we said, the whole thing of, ch- of these first four chapters is to get us to the idea of justification, to understand it. And then What? It's like, I got into Disneyland, now what? Right, that's the thought, that's the idea. It's not just staying in the entryway, it's to go in and take hold of all that is there for you. There is a lot more there for you to experience. And so what this is telling us here in these first couple of verses, verses one and two, is that there are four uh, primary things that justification produces. Four primary things. Essentially what this is telling us is what is the result of being declared just? When you are declared holy, when you're declared just, what happens? What's the result? Well, the first thing in verse 1 is that we have peace with God. Do you see that there in verse 1? Peace with God. Jesus brings peace with God. God. You see, humanity's default, humanity's natural state, your natural state is not to be at peace with God. In fact, it's to be at war with God. Now, that may seem weird to you. You may, you may think, I've never really been at war with God. I've never actively pursued um, declaring war on God and saying, I'm against you. And I've, been, I've tried to be a good person my whole life. Well, here's the thing. Um, the truth of the matter is that your sinfulness puts you at odds with him. And so maybe you don't think you're at war with God, but God is at war with you. God is at war with your sin. And so if he's at war with you, you are absolutely uh, caught up in a war because of your sinfulness. All people are image bearers of God. That comes right out of Genesis chapter 1, that God made man and woman. Uh, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, I think is where that's found. Uh, all people are found as image bearers of God. We've been created in the image of God. And some people take that concept and they conflate it to mean something it doesn't mean. You'll hear it like this. You'll hear people say it like this. We're all children of God. We're all the the children of God. Have you heard that? Maybe you've even said that. That, That's not a true statement. Biblically speaking, that is not a true statement. We are all image bearers of God. We've all been created by God. We've all been crafted by him lovingly and carefully and specifically and gloriously. And yet we're not all children of God. No, the only way that we become children of God is through adoption. And the price of your adoption is the blood of Jesus. That's the only way you become the child of God. You become the child of God by grace through faith. And when you are made the child of God, you're put, you're put at peace with God. You see, Jesus' blood makes me God's friend instead of his enemy. That's what the blood of Jesus does. And so that's this first idea of justification and what it produces, peace with God. Notice also, not only peace with God, but it's, look at verse 2, through whom, through, who's whom? Jesus. Jesus is the whom. Through whom we also have access by faith. The second thing that we have is access to God. Not just peace with God, but we have access to God. It's one thing to say, I'm no longer at war with you. We're at peace. And it's quite a different thing to say, I can come into your presence. Now, the word access, it's a word that is used to describe bringing somebody before a dignitary. It's the liaison, somebody that 
takes you and brings you into the presence of the king. It's, it's a, a pauper uh, uh, that has no rights and no ability of their own, no opportunity, who is ushered before the throne of the king. Not for judgment, but for relationship. That, that's the crazy thing that's, being, that's taking place with this word. Now, our access to God, it has a lot of implications to it, and I just want to briefly talk to a couple of these thoughts. Our access to God is instantaneous. You don't have to wait for a certain time. It used to be limited in the Old Testament that uh, only one man on one day, the high priest on the day of atonement could go into the presence of God, into the holy of holies in the temple. Now, uh, that, that was only accessible to him, that one guy on that one day. The rest of humanity was not given that kind of access. And yet because of Jesus, we have immediate access Think about that for a minute. You can at this very moment come into God's presence at any moment in time. It doesn't matter if you wake up at three in the morning and something's on your heart and mind. You can pray immediately and you're in the presence of God. It doesn't matter if you're driving your car. It doesn't matter if you're at work. It doesn't matter if you're changing your kid's diaper or whatever it happens to be. You have immediate access to God. It's instantaneous. It's perpetual. It's not something that's just, you know, here today and gone tomorrow. It's not something that, you know, I have to wait for a certain timing, but it's just perpetual access that I have to God. It's, it's individual. It's not something that's a group. It's not something that, you know, they have access to God or those people over there, or when I go to church, then I have access uh, to God. No, it's individual. You individually have access to God, which is mind-blowing when you think about all the people on the planet and that God can make himself available simultaneously to all of us at once. It's, it's crazy the way that he can do that. It's individual and it's eternal. It doesn't fade away. It doesn't, it's not like it's going to stop one day. It's not like, you know, it's, it's, you know, if you had access to some sort of dignitary, let's say you visited a, a king or a president or somebody and, you know, you had some time with them, you would only have a very short amount of time. Someone's going to be watching the watch and, and timing you and saying, okay, you're done now. Time to get out of the presence of this person. Not with the Lord, not with God. Jesus, because of his blood, provides you access to God eternally. What an amazing idea. It's not temporary and it's not restricted. Jesus' blood gives me the privilege of God's presence. Thirdly, uh, we have standing before God. That's what uh, the idea of justification does. It produces standing before God. Look at verse um, 2 again. Through whom we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. This grace in which we stand. We have standing uh, um, before God. Salvation is our, uh, and excuse me, salvation and sustaining our lives are given by God. That he gives you salvation by grace. That he gives you this, this sustaining of your life. He keeps you saved. He keeps you in Christ. It's not something you do. It's something... He does. And in this, um, he, uh, he, the ground that you stand on is his grace. The, the way that you're able to even stand before God is because he is so gracious. You don't deserve it. You didn't earn it. He's gifting it to you. He's allowing you to be in his presence because of his grace. Your position is given uh, because of his graciousness. You see, think about it like this. God doesn't just love you 
He also likes you. Are there some people in your life that you love? I'm sure there are. Are there some people in your life that you love, but you wouldn't necessarily choose to spend time with? (laughs) I'm going to guess there's probably some people like that in your life as well. See, those people that you wouldn't necessarily choose to spend time with, you love them, but you don't necessarily like them. And I think some people have a view of God that way. That God, God loves me because he's God. He kind of like has to. It's just this thing where God loves everybody. And so God has to love me, I guess. But he doesn't, he doesn't like me. He doesn't choose to spend time with me. Why would he do something so crazy as that? That's, that is not the view of God. That's not who he is. He likes you. He wants to be with you. He wants to spend time with you. He's interested in you. That may be a mind-blowing concept for you, but that's true. It's absolutely who he is. And when, you're, when your identity is secure in Christ, you realize that it's not because of your greatness that God wants to spend time with you. It's because of your justification by Jesus. That's how you're given that kind of aspect. When God looks at you, the ground that you're standing on, he's not looking at you with a scowl, with, with you know, furrowed eyebrows and a frowny face and like, I'm going to judge you. I, I, I love you, but... I might like you if you would just do a little bit better. That's not who God is. No, he's looking at you with joy and a smile and and excitement and anticipation for relationship. Here's how David Guzik says it. The standing that we have in grace tells us that grace is more than our means of salvation. It is also a description of our standing before God. It's not just the beginning principle of the Christian life. It's the continuing principle of the Christian life. It's not just the beginning, it's also the continuation, our standing before God. Jesus' blood gives me the position of favor with God. That's the idea of this standing. And fourthly, as we look at these uh, four different uh, parts uh, of justification or these the four things that justification produces, it produces, fourthly, rejoicing in God. Look there at verse 2. It says, Into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope, of the glory of God. Now God's glory, what this is saying, is the source of our hope. Do you see that there? So so let's take this phrasing and work it backward. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. God's glory produces our hope and that's where our joy comes from. That's what this is declaring to us. That God's glory is the source of our hope which produces joy. You see, there's a joyous pleasure of a life that's pleasing to God. Think about it, you know, just the way that, you know, like from a child's perspective, that that we we want our parents to enjoy us. We want them to be excited about us. We want them to look on us with favor. And when, when they do, there's this joyous hope that arises within our hearts. And when we can see God that way, when we can see that God is looking at you with, with, with this um, loving joy within his heart, within his eyes, then it brings uh, pleasure to our lives. Know that my life pleases God. That, that when I'm living a life that's not contrary to the Lord, that's lived in, in pursuit of sin and foolishness and depravity and wickedness, but instead when my life is in pursuit of holiness by his grace, by his power, by his ability, there's a, a, a joy unexpressible that you can't describe um, through any other human means that arises within the heart and the mind of the believer. You see, the pursuit of leisure or pleasure or money or 
power or even experiences and recreation, while they're not necessarily bad things in and of themselves, the pursuit of those will always leave you empty. They'll always come up short. They'll never truly fulfill you the way that you need to be fulfilled because you're made for more. You need the joy of God to fill your life in hope. And that can't happen apart from pursuit of him. You see, Jesus' blood gives me a life of satisfied purpose. That's what Jesus brings. Secondly, not only do we see the produce of justification, but also the produce of tribulation in verses 3 through 5. Look back at verse 3 with me, if you would. It says, and not only that. Now, now pause for just a second. Think about that phrase. Not only that, did you listen to what we just went through? Doesn't that sound like a crazy, amazing amount of stuff that you're thinking, that's more than enough. That, that's way more than I would have even thought to ask for. And yet that's what's been provided me by the blood of Christ. And not, but wait, there's more. You know, it's like one of those infomercials where you're going to buy a set of knives and then you get 85 of them in the set. And you know, it's like, but wait, there's another one. Not only does it do this, it'll cut through a cinder block and also cut your tomato. But wait, there's more. We're going to throw in your, you know, whatever. Okay. So, uh, I've watched too many of those. Um, and they always get me. I always want to buy more knives. But the thing is that there is more for us in Christ. It seems crazy to say it, but really there's actually more in a very real sense. When you look back at the things in verses one through two, Yes, there is a, a present um, thing that they do within our lives, but there, in, in a very real sense, it's, it's much more of a, a heavenly reality. That, that, you know, am I in God's presence now? Well, yes, in a sense, but I'm looking forward to being in God's presence in heaven, in the future. There's a future fulfillment. So the question then comes, well, what about now? What about my life right here, right now? You see, the mindset from verses 1 and 2 is absolutely essential. If we don't understand the implications of justification and where we stand with God and the, all of the aspects and, and uh, the ways that we have this access to God and his, his loving, gracious view toward us and the hope and joy we have in him, then we will not be able to understand uh, verses 3 through 5. We've got to understand God's goodness and his graciousness and his for-me-ness, if I could say it that way. That he's for you, not against you. And once that's established, then you can go into verses 3 through 5. Because if you don't understand verses 1 and 2, then the idea of, look at what it says in verse 3. Not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. When you read that phrase, you think, uh, that's, that's, that's cute, Paul, but um, I don't think that's true. When we don't understand verses 1 and 2, then the idea, the concept of glorying in tribulations, it seems like just a religious platitude, a nice idea. It's just something that religious people say to sound really holy, but it's not real. It has no bearing on my actual life. And though it seems counterintuitive, we cannot, as Christians especially, consider ourselves or hope for or expect a problem-free life. Doesn't that, doesn't that fly in the face of everything that you're pursuing? I mean, as a person, I'm constantly concerned with my own satisfaction. I'm concerned with my own um, uh, peace and my own uh, um, enjoyment of things. And, and I'm trying to perpetually insulate myself from anything that could be uh, painful or difficult or like it says there, tribulations. I, the, I don't want that. Whatever that is, I, I, like let's not sign up for those things. 
Uh, that's what I'm constantly trying to avoid. But what we have is uh, we have to understand the idea of tribulation and that there are actually three reasons for tribulations. That, that uh, before we get into all of these aspects and nuances of this, I just want to go over three different reasons for tribulations. Number one, God uses tribulation. That's a big thing that you've got to grasp theologically. It's got to be a, a rock in your theological mind that God uses tribulation. It's a unique tool in the hand of God to produce what cannot come any other way in your life. That God uses tribulation, he uses pain, he uses difficulty, he uses hardship to produce things in you that can come no other way. We're going to get into that here in just a minute. It's, it's like this, smooth seas never make for good sailors. Right? If, you want to, if you want to be a good sailor, you're going to have to go through some hard waves. Also, not only does God use tribulation, but secondly, God measures tribulation. God measures tribulation out to you. It's a tool that he uses to carefully craft your life, not a weapon in his hand to arbitrarily destroy your life. Sometimes we think of tribulation that way, don't we? God, why me? Why this? Why are you allowing this to happen in my life? Why, are you, why don't you stop this from taking place? Why did you bring this into my life? And when we ask those questions, we think that God's trying to destroy us instead of realizing he's actually building us through this pain that we would avoid in our own, in our own lives. You might, you might make it worse, though, through your own foolishness. You ever done that? You ever had that one happen? You, you ever had some trial, some difficulty, some hardship come into your life, and then you uh, exponentially increase the pain through your own foolish decisions or whatever? Absolutely, that takes place. And when that happens, we can't blame God and say, God, you, you're just putting too much on me. And you just, you take the victim role and say, God, you're, you're putting too much on me when the truth is that you've actually chosen foolishly and your own sin is what's making it as bad as it is. It shouldn't be that bad. It shouldn't hurt that bad. It shouldn't be that painful. And yet you've made it more painful through your own sin, through your own choice. You see, God's not overloading you with trouble. He's, he's actually measuring out this tribulation to you. And thirdly, God promises tribulation. We shouldn't avoid tribulation or think or hope to, to have a trouble-free life. God promised that we would have tribulation. It's a common experience for humanity. All people go through troubles. All people go through hardships. Why would we think that just because I became a Christian, now it's going to be puppy dogs and, uh, and rainbows and unicorns my, for the rest of my life, and then I'm disoriented when bad things happen? The, the reality is, the truth is that that's, that's me trying to live in a non-real reality. It's a common experience for humanity. And, and in John 16, 33, Jesus actually promised, he said, you're going to have trouble. In this life, you will have tribulation, but I've overcome the world. So there's hope in Jesus. It's not arbitrary. It's not random. He is in control. That there is a tribulation, you know, even though, you know, we, we think of this idea of tribulation and we don't like it and we want this tribulation-free, trouble-free life, there's something in that that's right and appropriate. It's good. We should want that. But that is heaven. That's not here on earth. That's not, that's not what we're going to experience this side of eternity. It's not going to happen here and now. It's going to happen there and then. It, it sounds counterintuitive, and it feels counterintuitive, but tribulation is the way that God builds hope. Hope's the biggest thing that you need. Hope is the number one thing that we need in life because it, that's the, the idea of, of what's connected to justification and how God builds it, 
how God puts it in you, it's actually through tribulation. So verses three through five, we have three things that God produces through tribulation. We're going to spend the rest of our time just looking at those. Tribulation is defined, I I like the way David Guzik defines it. It's stress-filled problems. You have any of those? Have any stress-filled problems? I mean, how can you be in America today and not have stress-filled problems? It seems like that's all we've been living through for the last few months is just stress-filled problems. And just like it seemed like things were going to start to get better, nope, everything starts getting worse. It sounds sounds like an evil enemy, stress-filled problems, but what God's trying to tell us is you've got to change the way you think about these. Your mind needs to shift. Your mindset has to change. It's not an enemy. It's actually a friend. That stress-filled problem is actually a friend. Now, physically, this makes sense. We kind of get this physically, don't we? I mean, if you want to run a marathon, you can't, you, you know, you can't just sit on the couch and then think, I'm going to get up and run a marathon. You're going to have to start running a little bit. You're going to have to work up to being able to do that. You're going to need to increase the stress on your body in order to be able to get to the point where you can run that far. Same thing with like weightlifting. You don't just go to the gym one day and uh, lift as much weight as the guy that's been doing it his whole life. You, you have to increase the stress and the weight in order for your body to respond physically that we understand it, that the pressure and stress and difficulty is what produces the strength. That, that's how it works. And so too it is with uh, a spiritual life. You can't eat Cheetos and sit on the couch and think that you're going to be strong. That's just not the way that it works. It's the pain of consistent eating and consistent training are the only way. It's not a surgery and it's not a pill. The same thing is true in the, in the spiritual things, that, that there is a way to get the maturity and the growth and the strength that you want, but, but it's not going to come the easy way that you think. That's not the way it's going to work. Here, here's the way I can describe it to you. The path to get what you want is through the pain you're trying to avoid. It's almost always true in every aspect of life. This, this applies spiritually, this applies in business, this applies in your family, in, in your marriage, with your kids, uh, with uh, any kind of relationship that you could, you could think of to have. The path to get what you want is through the pain you're trying to avoid. You naturally are, I'm pain adverse. I don't like pain. I want to avoid pain. And yet, I've got to willfully go into it in order to get the things that I want. You see, tribulation is the path, not the problem. Tribulation is the path, not the problem. It's how we do this glory, where it says we glory in tribulations. How do we glory in tribulation? We glory in tribulation because it's the path, not the problem. Here's how Skip Heitzig says it. Justification is not an escape from trials, right? We, We just talked about justification in the first section. Now we're talking about trials. They're connected to each other. Justification is not an escape from trials. It is the guarantee that those trials have purpose. It's a guarantee that those trials will work for you, not against you. I think it's extremely well said, very wise way to say that. Tribulation is a common human experience, but it doesn't guarantee growth. It doesn't guarantee growth. Everyone goes through trouble, but have you seen people go through trouble and they're worse off for it, not better off for it? You ever see people try to, uh, to manage the, the problem in the situation and it, and it leaves them in a state that's worse, not better? You see, tribulation doesn't guarantee growth. Your attitude, your posture, your mindset matters immensely. And so when we come at tribulation by faith, by hoping and trusting in God, then tribulation can leave us better instead of bitter. 
If you want to be better, if you want to grow, if you want to develop, then it all comes down to where's your hope placed? Where's your trust placed? Where is your faith being placed? Well, tribulation, um, it, it is designed to produce three things. It's like this cascade of things. It's like the dominoes are set and tribulation is the first one. If tribulation isn't pushed, you don't get the next ones. So what does tribulation do? Notice what it says there in verse three. Not only that, we also glory in tribulations. How? Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. Do you see that they're knowing? It's talking about the way you think about it. How do you think about what's your mindset connected to tribulation? When you know what it does, then you submit to it the right way. You go through it the right way. It produces perseverance. Now, perseverance is this idea of long-suffering. It's this idea of being able to endure. It's this ability to, uh, to go through it. Now, without tribulation, there's no need for perseverance, right? Well, like, what am I going to endure if I live in a perpetual paradise? There's nothing to endure. I'm just, I'm enjoying things. I'm just, if I'm on a, a constant, you know, vacation cruise, then there's nothing to endure. I got to endure the all-you-can-eat buffet. Oh, no. I have to endure sitting by the pool and reading a book or whatever it is. Like, there's nothing to endure if you're always in a paradise. And so the tribulation creates the opportunity for this perseverance to take place. You see, we spend far too much of our time insulating ourselves and our loved ones, our loved ones from potential trouble, from possible issues in life. And we might actually be in those times fighting against God. Sometimes the worst thing that you can do for somebody is help them. <laughs> that sounds weird, doesn't it? Sometimes the worst thing you can do is rush in and rescue somebody from the pain that they're experiencing. Sometimes that's, you're actually, you're actually removing them from the situation that God put them in so that they would grow. Sometimes we have to go into pain. Sometimes we need the, the difficulty of the hardship of, of experiencing the stuff that we don't want to, of the things that are hard. It's, even, it's hard when you watch loved ones do it. You, you always, you, I always want to rescue. I always want to come in and help. But sometimes you're actually fighting against God in that because they need perseverance. Well, what, is, what happens with perseverance? Remember the dominoes. Tribulation knocks over the domino of perseverance. And when perseverance finds its right work, what happens with perseverance? Well, no, look back there again. Look at verse 4. It says, and perseverance produces character. That the result of perseverance, when you're in the trying situation, when you're in the trouble and you've got to persevere through it and you, there's no escaping it, I'm going to go through it and I'm just going to trust God. I'm going to hope and, and realize he's with me in this and he's working something and I, I can't see the way it's all going to happen and it seems really dark and it seems like everything's broken and wrong and we're all going to die and, and everything's bad. In the middle of that, God produces character within you. Perseverance through tribu tribulation forms godliness within you. Now, I can't really jump into all of this just because of time, but I'm going to briefly talk through this. And so maybe you can go back and watch it again if you want to uh, see it in a, a more uh, slow kind of a pattern and look up some verses for yourself. The, the idea there is that, that I want to point out is that 
When you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it's this, um, you know, the, the chapter of love. When God's describing and defining what love is, the very first thing that God describes as the definition of love is perseverance, is long suffering. Okay, so the love is long suffering. Love suffers long. Love is persevering. That's the, the first definition. And when we think of the things that are first in the Bible, they carry extra weight. And so when God thinks about what love is, he thinks that it is persevering, uh, long suffering. Now take that concept, go to 1 John chapter 1, uh, excuse me, 1 John chapter 4, uh, I think it's verse 3, somewhere around there, we're told that God is love. God is love. So if God is love and love is persevering, it's long suffering, then when God puts you in situations where you have to suffer long, he's actually using them to create himself, his character in you. Do you want to be more godly? Do you want to develop and mature in your faith? Do you want to be more like Jesus? It's through the road of suffering. There's no other way to get there. there there's, you're not going to just, I don't like it like that. You know what I want to do? I want to go to bed at night and I want God to sprinkle fairy dust on me while I'm sleeping and I just wake up. I'm more godly today. That, that's what I would like, but that's not how he does it. The way that he does it, the path to godliness is down the road of tribulation. Are you willing to go down it? Are you willing to take that route? Are you willing to, uh, to experience that? This is the how of becoming more like Jesus. You see, your weaknesses, your failures, and your sins are clearly on display when you go through tribulation. And you have to persevere. And, the, and God removes that stuff from you. He strips it out of your life. He turns up the heat and he pulls off the dross. And then he replaces that with himself. In the void, Jesus is there to fill the void and transform your life. Thirdly, we see not only perseverance, but that domino falls into character. And then finally, look at verse, the end of verse four, and character, hope. When Jesus miraculously and fundamentally transforms you, who you are, it fills you with inexpressible hope. When you're not who you used to be, when you don't struggle with what you used to struggle with, when you're, when you're better off for the tribulation, doesn't that fill you with crazy hope? Don't you see how amazing and powerful God is? That if God is strong enough to change the human character, isn't he strong enough to do anything? And that fills you with inexpressible hope. The hope that we have in Christ, notice it says there, doesn't disappoint. Look at verse 5. Now hope does not disappoint because... The love of God has been poured in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. We're back to the idea of love. You see that there? The connection to love and hope and God producing his own character within you. When Jesus, uh, excuse me, the hope that we have in Christ doesn't disappoint because it always comes through. It never fails. God is never worried about, about losing or failing. Uh, he's never outmatched. He's always He's always the one who comes out as the victor. And when you trust him in your tribulation, you're trusting in his goodness and that he's using it for your benefit. He's using it to grow you, not to crush you. That that's what, that's what God does. Now his love is poured out in you. Do you see that there in verse five? The love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. This is the greatest and most miraculous transformative hope. That, that the love of God could literally be within your life. It's proof that you're saved. 
Do you want to be, do you want proof that you're in Christ? Do you want proof that you're actually saved? That your, your belief in Jesus, that prayer you prayed that one day back then worked, it actually stuck? Here's the proof. God's love within you miraculously by the Holy Spirit. That that's the proof of God's presence. Um, hope is uh, not only that, but it's also uh, that tribulation isn't arbitrary, random, or accidental. That, that there's, I can have hope in this. That there's a trial in my life. It's hard and I don't like it, but God is good. And I trust him and I know that it's not an accident. It might feel that way, but it's not. You see, the evidence of the Holy Spirit is love. More than supernatural experiences, more than supernatural gifts, more than talents and abilities, the love of God in your life is the proof that the Holy Spirit is there. And God's love is a supernatural strength that actually brings hope in your life. You can, you can have hope in his love for you. That's part of this hope, that God loves me. His love is for me, and that makes me accepted before the Lord, but also that his love is through me and that makes me available to him. I'm not just accepted by him, but I'm also available to him as a receiver of his love and a conduit of his love. It flows out of my life to those around me. Tribulation is the path, not the problem. Tribulation is the path, not the problem. And you can trust Jesus with this because you have been justified by grace through faith. If Jesus is willing to go to the, the painful tribulation of the cross to purchase your soul, can you trust him that even, the, even in the hardship that he's at work in it? I think you can. I think we can trust that Jesus is, is working in the middle of the hardships, that he is truly in control, that he's justified me. And so because of that, I can go down this pathway of difficulty and hardship because of his goodness. Now, as we close, I just want to, I want to close and, and leave you with these three thoughts. And we're going to leave them on the screen for a little bit because I, I want you to consider three things by way of application as we close. Three, three different questions to consider. What painful situation are you trying to avoid? What's the difficulty, the hardship, you, the decision you need to make, the, the way you need to go? You keep avoiding it. You keep trying to get out of it. You, you keep trying to say, well, I just, I don't really want to confront the issue. I don't want to say anything. I, I don't want to mess up the relationship. I don't want to hurt the other person. I don't want to, I don't want to endure the pain of my, this thing because I don't want to go into that. What painful situation are you trying to avoid? It very well might be the thing that God's trying to take you into and you're trying to avoid it. What, what do you have to lose if you allow yourself to go through it? What do you have to lose? Think through that. What is, there, what is there to lose? Or here's another one. What do you have to gain if God is who he really says he is? If he really is that good? If he really is that able? So I want you to think on those, those questions. Think on those, those thoughts and uh, consider them and, and trust the Lord as he leads you into the painful situations that you would naturally avoid. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for how good you are to us. And we pray that today you would allow us to be able to grow in the grace and knowledge of you, Lord Jesus. That as, as we've seen how you are the one who is able to miraculously use 
things that we would naturally avoid in order to transform us into your image, to make us more like you, we pray that you would help us to trust you in it. Instead of avoiding things at all costs, that we would go into them knowing that you are good and that knowing that you are God and you are able. So, Lord, we, we declare our trust to you again once, to, once again today, and we pray that you would help us to see what those painful situations are in our lives that we're trying to avoid, and that we would, um, instead of avoid them, we would believe you through them. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.